of Low. Hey, KK. Welcome back to another episode of Horror, Wine, and Crime. HWC, in case you didn't know. We have a really fun episode for you guys tonight. Um, I'm very excited for it. Um, kind of before we jump in, this is my first time face-to-face recording with Lo in like a month. Reunited and it feels so good. Right? It's been a minute. We've both been super busy with summer. I mean, I have teenagers that are driver's training and getting jobs and playing softball and back and forth from mom's house to here, so driving. And then she's got New York trips and Tennessee trips and we're just finally made it to our schedules meshed up. Right? It is good to be back. Lo's got an incense going. It's smelling good up here. She's got the vibes right for this uh, recording sesh. (laughs) We're trying some new cotton candy wine. It's very good. Like, I really like it. It tastes like, like I I said this to Lo, it tastes like Jolly Rancher cotton candy. If that was like a flavor of a Jolly Rancher, that's what it tastes like to me. It's very, very sweet. I couldn't drink like a lot of it, but... It's so good. But the kind can't, it's subtle, though. Yeah, It's yeah. not like... It's not overpowering. No. It's not too strong. My daughter went to Tennessee with her dad to Gatlinburg, and they brought us back a bottle. So thank you guys for the lovely bottle of wine. The picture on it, so cute. It's like a little bear. What was it? Blowing a bubble or like eating a sucker or something? It looks like a little Smokey the Bear with a... Probably cotton candy. Cotton candy, probably. Yeah, that makes sense, because it's a cotton candy one. <laughs> I'm so smart. <laughs> it's okay. We love you. But yeah, it's delish. I really thoroughly enjoy this. So before we dive into our show, um, some weird things have been happening. Not things. So I don't know what to make. So maybe people can write in and give me their explanations if they're listening. Crystal can tell me hers. I talked to a couple people about it and they've had a few suggestions. Um And then I did tell my husband, and he was just like, "Uh." Well, anyway, so last week, one night I was sleeping, and I don't know know if I was dreaming. I think I was. And either in my dream or in real life, but my eyes open. A lot of times my eyes will open, but I'm still in that dream state. Yeah. It's a heavy problem for me when I sleep. I see things a lot that aren't there and it takes a second to wake up and I'm like oh those are mini blinds or oh those are but this is something new um I had a dream or something and I'm laying on my side of the bed so I'm laying on my left shoulder my left side and I open my eyes and it's like a little boy and it looks like he's trying to bring me something and it's like right there on my side of the bed and I can see Crystal's face as I'm going on with this. Ugh. And it took a second, but then once I, like, tried to focus, he, like, disappeared. And then I kind of, like, woke up. Yeah. But it kind of, like, startled me, right? Oh, yeah. Well, then the next night, my husband came home from being out of town, and we went to bed. And there was nothing funky or anything out of the ordinary. We've been laying in bed watching Suits. And all of a sudden, I'm sleeping, and... Again, all of a sudden, this time it's an Asian man, like an old man, on my side of the bed, again, and it's like he's leaning into my face to tell me something, but then he got so close at it, I literally went, (gasps) and I sat straight up, 
And then he wasn't there no more. And then I just kind of like fell back asleep. It hasn't happened in a couple of days ever since I talked about it out loud. It hasn't happened. Um, so I told my cousin Lisa about it because she's very into her spiritual intuitions. Um, and she just said that we're in a new moon. Things are changing. There's things going on literally with the universe. Um, so that could be a thing. Um, I talked to my friend Margot. She thinks that maybe different forms, but it could be my dad trying to reach out to me or my friend Sam, who I lost and dearly miss, um, could be a loved one in a different form trying to say something. So I don't know what's going on, but like that's new for me. But it's like it seems so real and it's on my side of the bed. And yeah, it like takes my breath away before I wake up. Like, oh, I bet. I would lose all breath if that happened to me. That's scary. Um, I would say if if it happened just once, like the if it was just like the little boy or whatever, I would be like, maybe it was just a dream and it was like you were just waking up and you were but the fact that it happened twice that's in little, different form. Like yeah, different people. That's weird. And it's people and that the, I've never seen before. And the fact that they're like both like leaning in and you know what they say? Like, they say that when you see, like, a person or something or a face in your dream, you've seen that face before. Yeah. Because you, like, can't create it. But the fact that, like, you're, you've are you never, like, seen them is also super weird. And they said that, like, past that it could have been somebody that I looked at while I was walking through Meyer, but didn't register yeah. that I saw. Like, it could have been a little boy in a cart with his mom. Right. And I didn't pay any special attention because I didn't know them so why would I right you know or if I was you know getting gas maybe the Asian guy walked out of the gas station the same time I went in to pay you know held the door open for me just something and right. you know you look at him oh thank you but you didn't study him yeah you, know, you just, just like glance and then like you didn't think about it afterwards but that's super interesting that they're like leaning in towards you like as if they're like trying to like tell you something yes because like, I'm like laying on my side yeah and it's almost like they're like getting like right up to my face Ew. Like that's what I, I know Ugh. I would not be able to sleep <laughs> personally so um i did talk to my cousin lisa and she's like maybe it's time to smudge again in the yeah. house. Mm-hmm. we do a lot of talking in this room yeah. in this house of different people Could and stir things stir some things up or whatever um, so but if you guys have any ideas or anything please email me and tell me yeah. i am happy to hear or take any advice or what you guys think it could possibly be. But I feel like, because Lisa's like, somebody's trying to tell you something. Someone's coming to you from something from the other side. Now my husband doesn't believe that. He believes when you pass, you go into the grave and that's it until Jesus Christ comes and gets you and mm-hmm. then recreates you into whatever you're going to be. Um, this isn't that kind of show, so we won't go on to deep biblical thoughts. Right. Um, which is weird, though, because what we're going for this. Right, yeah. But, um, so he doesn't really buy that anybody's reaching out to me. He thinks it could just be a subconscious thing of someone I've seen in the store and I'm just having weird dreams. I don't know, but it's scary. I'm very, I'm I'm not sure, because I feel like it could be all of the above. Like, it could be one of those things. But it's just like, I don't know, like, I wonder... If it, I hope it doesn't happen again. But, like, if it does, I wonder if you'll get more. I don't know. My husband's like, well, why don't you wake me up? I'm like, dude, 
what are you gonna they disappear like right, what, what are you gonna, gonna do? do like and it's not like i'm having a sweaty nightmare where it's like long drawn out story that scared the it's shit out like of me and then i'm waking up all sweaty and like having a panic attack it's just like it takes my breath away for a quick second yeah and then i realize i'm dreaming and i'm in my room and i'm in bed and i just i'm at that point it's like two o'clock in the morning so i'm just like fall right back into my sleep right you know yeah yeah that's very interesting i don't know I feel like it really could go any way. Like, it could be a type of dream, like, something your subconscious is trying to tell you. Or, I mean, or it could be, like, you know, something trying to give you a message of some sort. Like, I thought, like, maybe should I get, like, a ring camera in my room, but I'm really scared of what I'd find. No, no, no. I'm really scared. I'm really scared of what I'd find in those green, that green dark light. Yeah, like, like I feel like I get that. And too many orbs I would be, be too scared to, like, actually watch it, you know? I'd be like, I'd be like... Someone else watch it for me until like I it turns into something. like a paranormal activity oh, thing. Oh yeah, no. That's... Once I start getting dragged off the bed by my ankle, then we'll. Then that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> and then Crystal's like, "I've never stepped foot in here." Yeah, I'm gonna be like, "Well, we can um, meet other places," but <laughs> no, that's super interesting. Though I wonder what that is. Okay. Well, keep us updated if it happens again. I definitely will. Yeah. I'll start doing a dream journal on our right? Instagram. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, we're also going to talk about a movie and then do a little mini true crime story after. They're kind of similar but different. Um, I tried to find one that meshed up with this one really well, but I was having a hard time, so I went with close enough. Yeah, that works. <laughs> So, before we get into it. Indigo. I don't know, because I haven't seen them in like five years. But I'm sure it'll be a very unsurprising weekend with them. <laughs> you guys bring in without me? Gil! The gang is all back together. I love it, I love it. I want to make a speech. To us? To us! To us. <laughs> you guys don't know what that is that was a movie called the alpines and if you guys are followers and listeners and creepies that creep with us you guys will know we did the movie seven um a few months back and this kind of coincides with it a little bit i think yeah same like like main idea behind it uh the seven deadly sins um definitely a fascinating rabbit hole that you can go down with those so 
We did seven, and my cousin, oh, my cousin, she really took to that movie. It really resonated with her. And when my son and his girlfriend told me they were watching this movie and explained what it was about, I'm like, excuse me, I gotta go make a phone call. I called my cousin I, um, to tell her, like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what they're watching. She's like, oh, my God. So she watched it, and then it took me a minute, but I ended up going over there and watching it with her. And then I text Kay, and I'm like, hey, that one you got to go watch. So she's like, all right, I'm on it. So she watched it, and we're going to kind of talk about it for a little bit. Um, so would you... Before we go into, like, the little quirks of it, overall, what did you think of the movie? Overall, I it took a while for me to get into it. I feel like it was a slow build, for sure. But then once stuff started happening, I was like, okay, okay, a lot, a lot more is happening. This is getting kind of, like, you know, crazy and different things are happening, which we'll get into. Um, and then, like, the end, like, the full message behind everything comes out, and it's like, ah. Oh, okay okay I see I see so I did like it I didn't love it I didn't think it was like super great or crazy or anything but I did like I did enjoy it I mean it wasn't seven right right (laughs) it wasn't Brad Pitt yeah but you know (laughs) but especially once it got towards the end I was definitely more like hooked into it to be like what is going on here okay so we're gonna break it down for you a little bit if you've seen it awesome if not There's probably going to be spoiler alerts, so just be prepared. So The Alpines, it came out in 2021, and it is a psychological thriller. It was directed by Dante Albane, and it was a screenplay written by Mally Corrigan, who also played Logan in the movie. Um, And it's about seven friends coming together for a weekend getaway, after several years of little to no contact, and they've all grown apart, they moved on with their lives, but there are secrets in their past. And these secrets have come back to haunt them. And this time with very real threat and ready to be exposed. Like every last secret is coming out of the closets of all the skeletons. Dark secrets too, let me tell you. Um... This movie was shot in a little unique home located in a small town known as Wolcott, Vermont. And the movie opens up with Zach. He's in a counseling office and he's talking to his counselor and the counselor says, how are you healing? But Zach kind of had like, I don't know if he was really quite full panic attack, but he's avoiding it. He's Mm -hmm. just like, I can't do this. I gotta go. I gotta leave. And he kind of just, like, makes his way out of the office. And that kind of sets up the kind of cornerstone of the movie. Yeah, it kind of sets the tone for it. So, fast forward, they all receive these letters, uh, which is kind of funny in a way, because it reminds me of the movie Clue. Yes. Like, when they're all going to the dinner party and they all have these invitations Mm -hmm. and... But I think Clue, they didn't really know each other. But this one, they all knew each other. But going back to Clue, they were all connected somehow. They were all one. Um, Now, I can't remember. Was the... 
for the letters, they said it was all in different handwriting, right? Yes. So nobody could tell who said what. So it wasn't one letter. I know the reading was, the scripture was the same, right? But it was all in different handwriting. It was all different handwriting. um, And they all, everyone except for the, what was his name? Everyone got it from this guy, except he was like, I didn't send that letter. I got a letter from, um, I believe he said uh, it was Logan he got the letter from, but then everybody else got the letter from him, and he was like, I didn't write these. And then that's when they realized it was all in different handwriting, and then they were like, well, who sent these? Like, what's going on? So the mind games had already started to be like Easter eggs and kind of like... Unravel. Yeah. Because, but none of them seemed like really worried about it. They were just like, well, I didn't send it. I well, and who sent it? But then they were just like, eh. I mean, they talked about it, but the letters, but they didn't really like... Right. They panicked talk. for like a second, but then it wasn't as big of a deal. Let's just drink and start smoking weed and having right. fun. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until a bigger thing happened that they started to actually really panic. So he's off to join his friends by he, that is Zach, um, in the cabin in the woods, and he's kind of strangely excited in spite of all the chaos. But why is Zach so excited? Hmm? We'll get there. We'll find out. As the group gets back together again, and old rivalries, old truths come out, we learn more and more about their backstories and... Like, all the injuries and all the, the scars of the past start to, to start to, their true colors start to show. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Definitely a good way to phrase that. <laughs> Which is funny, though. Um, I was just telling Crystal, we were talking about this, like, you know, they say that they had very little contact with each other. They kind of all had, like, a little falling out with each other, and everybody just went their own ways. But they seem to kind of know about each other's business for not talking to each other. So that was kind of a little, I want to say a blip in my... Yeah, like a plot hole kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah. like they knew so-and-so got fired and they knew this one was getting married. So I guess maybe Instagram. Right, like if, I guess, little blips of things maybe they caught on. But like, it is weird if they don't really talk on a regular basis that they would know these things about each other. They made it sound like they were all pissed off at each other, but at the same time, they all knew to, I don't know. Right. So, it really starts to kick off when James and Gil decide to go for a drive, and a tire blows out, which, instead of fixing the tire to men in a car, (laughs) they just pull it over and decide to go for a walk. Yeah. I'm like, do they not have a spare, maybe? Or, like, what's going on there? And um, secrets start to get exposed. Gil says that he knows that uh, James slept with Andy behind Zach's back. And then, so he gets all mad about that. And then James says, yeah, well, I know you've been, you know, shoving drugs down one of the other... Rogers, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, down his throat. And they kind of go for blows, and one hits him in the face, but then James goes, like, hardcore psycho, like... He goes ape shit on his It went hand. from, like, 10 to 15 out of 10, and, and, like, stomps on his surgery-making hand, like, 
kills his career like in 45 seconds. Yeah. Like, that was ruthless. I was like, wow. This, es- this escalated very quickly. So after that point, you're like, okay, buckle up because it's about to get, like, you know it's about to take off from here. Right. Like, exactly. So they go back and everybody's like, oh my God, what happened? What'd you do? Blah, blah, blah. Didn't he say he like fell? He's like, I just fell. I think that's And everybody it. was like, hmm. We don't believe you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little something more than that. That's definitely when it picked up the most is when that interaction happened. I was like, wow. I mean, they really have, they got issues with each other. I fell under James's foot three times. Yeah. (laughs) Three different times, very roughly. I just happened to put my hand under his foot. So now they have a bonfire. Um, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. But I think that's where, like, all the secrets are now starting to, like... They weren't all revealed, but things are starting to Bubble throw up over the mouth. And yeah. people are starting to get comfortable with each other. It's like, oh, yeah, well, how about this, you know? Right. Um, we learned that prior to James' meeting and Marion Rowan, which I would say she was probably one of my favorites, though. I liked her. Yeah, I liked her, too. Her and Logan. Yeah. Um... Rowan had slept with Andy and never mentioned it to Rowan. Um, This comes out when we learn that Rowan has been having an affair with her female yoga instructor for the past year. Scandy. So scandalous. We learn that Gil has been supplying Roger with drugs to keep him from Logan uh, getting together with Andy. And the revelations just keep coming. Andy ultimately finds out that, you know... Zach is still in love with her, but then she's like, oh, well, you waited this long to tell me, so do I really believe you? And she gets all mad and, like, leaves. Like, he's confessing his... I know. I didn't I didn't get that. I didn't get why she was so upset with him saying that. I don't know. Maybe she was just overwhelmed and didn't know how to react because there was a lot going on in general, so maybe she just had, like, an outburst. But I was like, why is she so mad? Like... I don't know, but I feel like she slept with a couple people through the group, so... They were all... <laughs> I was kind of, like, skeptical about her and everyone her. aside from Zach, they were just all sleeping with each other, I feel like. <laughs> like, at some point, they got with each other. Pretty much, like... Which definitely would definitely uh, hold for a messy group, friend group, then, if everybody's been with everybody at some point. <laughs> and then, while the guys in the group knew about Zach's love for Andy... Again, they all continued to sleep with her and pull her away from Zach, which is kind of shady. Yeah. If you guys are supposed to be friends back in college, that's a, like... That's a bad move. Bad friend move. Yeah, like... But then they're like, but Roger is so messed up on drugs that Gil is pushing him down his throat. So that was the only reason why he was shitty to Andy. Like, there's just, like, so many So different... many layers. And they, they just all seem like kind of shitty friends to each other. Yeah. None of them were... Top-notch people, I would say. And it destroyed Zach. He was, like, so upset. He made the play for Andy. He never told her how he felt. You know, now he's opening up, and he didn't quite get the response that he wanted. And I think that kind of put things into a faster overdrive for the weekend. Like, now he's on it. Right, because now he's really feeling, like, the stress and anxiety and sadness of the whole situation. I put myself out there, you know. Right. His ego was definitely crushed even more. So, let's talk about the wall. The scene where um, they write on the wall, the Mm -hmm. naughty wall. Yes. It said, secrets, secrets, secrets. 
Sinners secrets are no fun. That's creepy. It's creepy. And it's in blood. And it's in blood. Yeah. I feel like it could have been creepier. Because, like, if I feel like if I saw that, I'd be like, what? (laughs) And it's kind of, like, funny that you say that because one of the friends was just like, you know, dude, no, F this, blah, blah, blah. Like, what's going on? Who did this? Tell us, blah, blah, blah. Everybody else is just like, what is going on? Like, yeah. And then, you know, kind of going back to the letters again and, like, what is happening? Like, right. you know, if this is a sick joke, tell us who did it. But they weren't, like, over-the-top concerned. Only one of them was. Yeah, I think Andy, like, freaked out and, like, left and ran out of the room. Um but everybody else was kind of just, like, scratching their heads, like, I don't, this is weird, this is creepy, but I don't really understand it. But they didn't really freak out. Like, they didn't feel unsafe at that point. Yeah. They are just like, okay, someone's fucking with us. Right. You know? Like, I don't think they felt, like, any concern for their, like, lives or anything. Yep. And then, at this point, um, there's photos that was left on the bathroom sink for Rowan to see. And it's of James of Andy um, in some compromised uh, positions. Mm-hmm. And it's written in lip... It's written, <laughs> it's written in lipstick on the mirror. And again, it's the word secrets. And if you look on the ceiling and the wall, it's just pictures of Rowan and Andy... Or, James and Andy. Everywhere. Everywhere. And she's like, what in the actual F is going on? So now she's ticked off. And her birth control, because Rowan and James were talking about how they were trying to have a baby. They were telling everybody. But then we see Rowan secretly taking birth control pills. Mm -hmm. And then those were missing also. So she was also, like, freaking out about her own secret, too. So now she knows shit somebody knows. Yeah. What's going on. But she goes out there, and she's like, what the F is this? And then things escalate. And then what do you know? She's like, you know what? Screw it. I've been sleeping with the yoga instructor. Um, we're having this, you know, lesbian fest. I'm like... I'm sure that was, like, the last <laughs> thing he was expecting. It was the last thing I was expecting to hear. Because, like, she was, she kept getting these, like, ominous phone calls. I thought it was a guy. I thought she was having an affair with a guy. I did too and then I was like maybe they want us to think that and maybe it's something else. Maybe it's like maybe she's into drugs and it's like a drug dealer or like something else is going on. But no, it was her female yoga instructor. Surprise! (laughs) So, yeah. All that's happening. And then meanwhile um, Zach is also covered. I'm sorry, Zach covers Andy in blood while she was taking a nap, which is a reference to the secret of an abortion that she had while she was sleeping with James. So it's like, first of all, that's just dark. Yeah, like, very. That one was. That one was deeply personal and dark. And very horrible yeah. and like messed up. Yeah, that one is a little, a little too much, Zach. But mm-hmm. as we know, you kind of cray cray. So. Yeah, a little too far there. So Rowan and James get into it. Um, meanwhile, at, while everything is escalating, um, 
James ends up killing Rowan. Like that shocked me the most. Cause I'm like, he just went at her. Like, I'm like, she's dead. He just killed her. Like, obviously, you know, he's got the wrath. He's got the. He's got anger issues, and he, he was stomping on, you know, his friend's hand and then kills his wife. Like, clearly he's got some things he's got to work on. But that really, truly shocked me when I realized that he murdered her. And then they start putting the pieces together. Because Logan works it all out, and he figures the fact that it had to be Zach who put it all together. Like, everybody's starting to connect the dots. Kind of like those things where you talk it out loud, talk it out. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, but then, but then if you go back to, again, kind of like the movie Clue. Right, they're putting all the pieces together. Uh, Logan knew about Annie's abortion, but she, he was the only one that knew. And they're like, no, no, Zach knew because I told him, Mm -hmm. no, somebody else knew. And they're like, wait, what? Um, now the whole group knows, like, you did what? And now right. there's, like, commotion, and it's just getting more and more chaotic. Craziness is going on. You know everybody's head's, like, got to be exploding with, all, like, all this information overload. Right, like, information, but then also just, like, so much stress, like, on top of it all, too. Oh, yeah, by the way, Rowan's dead upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. There's just fake blood everywhere or real blood. I really, they never clarified where the blood came from, but like there was blood. Um, so after they, they start telling Zach, like, we know it's you, um, Zach gives James the gun and he's like, just kill me. He's like begging him to kill him, begging him to kill him. Um, we know it's serious because he's got the gashes on his wrists. So um, I don't know if everybody knew at that time. I don't think, but now it becomes very clear to everybody that he tried to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now they're like, okay, he's certifiable crazy. He's legit. Um, and he's like really hoping to be his own personal John Doe from the film Seven. Yeah, right. <laughs> and... So now James and Zach are kind of going at it. And, you know, James is trying to be, like, detective. And he's getting more mad. It's kind of sitting in. I just killed my wife. All these other secrets are coming out. And it escalates. And Zach's just like, oh, dear God. And, like, shoots James. Like, shut up. And just kind of, like, shoots him. Like, and so now we're down to. Yeah. And everybody's just like, what the F is going on? Everyone's mind blown. And Zach didn't even, Zach didn't even want anybody to die, he said. He was like, that wasn't my plan. I didn't even want anybody to die. I just wanted all their secrets to come out and like to make a statement basically. But I think things just got obviously way too out of control. And now at this point, two people are dead. Yeah, a little too much gas on the fire. Yes, quite a bit. And the narrator will clue in the audience into what is happening. You you hear his, like, voiceover. And, you know, it says, You see, humans are extremely simple creatures, each individually formulated by a mixture of light and dark, both good and evil. Most are balanced of the two and the others. Now, there is this the moral message and the warnings and they're, you know, reflectable. Um, 
though they are forgiven by God, they are damned to a life of predetermined torment for their sins. And so that goes back to the seven sins. There's glutton, which is Roger, no temperance. There was Gil, the greedy, no charity. James, as KK just said, he was wrath. He had no patience. Rowan, the envious, she had no kindness. Andy, who was lustful, no self-control. Logan, the proud, no humility. And Zach, the sloth, no zeal. Now, contrary to believe, the seven deadly sins aren't actually in the Bible. They were classified in, and categorized by Ponticus. I could be saying that wrong. It sounds like it's a biblical thing. Um, I'm not sure. But they became integral. Integral? I think like integrated. Okay. To the Catholic Church's confessional practices. Um, and it was based on the seven sins of the seven planets. And when the eighth was found, the seventh became number eight. The seven deadly sins also became a foundational due to Dante's purgatory. And even penance were drafted based on this hierarchy of these sins. The ideal being totally 100% extra biblical. Now, how can one black paint be darker than the next black paint? In the face of the brightest white of snow, it's all infinitely black. But yeah, these seven sins have classified into a logical construct that mean more than individual components that make them up. But here is the crucifix of it. Or is that crutch? Crux. Crux. We are all sinners. We are all imperfect. Just the fact of the human condition, we are all in need of saving. And thankfully, there is a way. So, um, just we're going to talk about some of the scenes. And like I said earlier, so for me... In this movie, the big part of it, aside from the wall, um, it was a bonfire scene for me. They're playing truth or dare, um, and they play it by the fire. It's where their pasts appear in their faces. The anger that some of them have for one another begins to reveal itself. Through the game, each of them tries to taunt the other by asking their secrets or trying to make them reveal those in some way via truth or dare while it's short nature, the bonfire scene accumulates into um, a revelation pretty quick. Yeah, definitely. Zach was the one who sent the letters to each of them. He wrote the warning on the barn. During the revelation, he even gave James the gun so James could kill him. But, you know, thus Zach shoots him instead. And, you know, it just goes on, you know, and on and on. And... It plays into the end of everything we just kind of talked about. But it plays that he was the secret keeper. Without him being able to share with anyone, it took a toll on him. This time it would be him who would spill the secrets of everyone. Um, almost for like a revenge. And what it's saying at the end of the movie, it kind of comes out as, 
he was there for every single person in that group. They all came to him crying, whether it was for drugs, for a broken heart, for not getting the job, for whatever. But when he was at his lowest and was suicidal, not one person picked up the phone or took the time to call him back to see if he was okay. That kind of, I feel like, is... That's, he, that drove him to do everything. Yes. And he was, like, at his lowest. And it took a strain on him, like... I had to help everybody. I was there for everybody, but not one of you were there for me. Right. And I did feel kind of bad at that point. Yeah, because clearly bit, like, he's mentally going through something. I don't think he inherently is a bad person. I think that he was having a major mental breakdown. And, like, clearly he tried to kill himself. He A lot was happening in his life. And he was clearly going through a mental breakdown which led to all this so i don't think he was like a horrible person naturally i just think that he was just crumbling and it's like if you go back and think like if one person would have just called them back none of this might have happened would this all have been avoided right if just one person would have been like you know hey you called what's up my dude right you know? yeah so, note to self, if you miss a call from your friend, call him back. <laughs> Even if you haven't talked to him in the years, just check on him. Right. So, another big scene for me um, was, let's talk about watching him stab himself and cut himself. I had to look away. I'm not kidding. I looked away. I said, I'm going to throw up or I'm going to pass out. Like, I can't. That was crazy. Oh. Like, you're watching yourself just. No, I don't like it. Okay, we'll move on. No, we can talk about it, but I just couldn't. She's like, I hate this. I could not watch it. I really couldn't. Um, To me, that was a little like, whoa, what's going on? Like, you're watching yourself cut yourself. Like, was he dreaming? Was he hallucinating? Was Was it in his mind? Like, it was crazy for me. It was. It was pretty twisted. It was. It was a lot. (laughs) And then you know the wall scene. It's like. When do you, like, bow out? <laughs> you know? Yeah. When does this, like, end? Um, and then, so, I don't know about Crystal. And she can answer for herself because she's right here. <laughs> but the end was a little confusing for me. Because he's back in the office again. And he's like, so how are you healing? Yes. And this time he has a little bit of a different answer. And then he picks his stuff up gradually and, you, you know, walks out. Mm-hmm. I think. It ends anyway. Right. So I was a little confused on, to me, this brought back American Psycho vibes. Yes. I 100% get that same vibe. Like, it obviously they're very different movies, but, like, it was the same type of thing where you're thinking, did any of that even happen? Or was that just, like, this guy's figment of his imagination? This is what I found. Mm-hmm. There was a time when everyone indulged in him, but nobody asked him about what he was going through. And before he knew it, he was abandoned by all of them. The day he cuts his wrist, he called them all, but no one answered. The burden he was carrying was for nothing. And the last secret for the remaining ones, Logan, Roger, Andy, and Gil, hurt but alive to keep, he shoots himself. And then it goes on to say, um, when they asked her, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, okay? Um, they said the ending. 
So that's always her favorite topic when it comes to discussions for the film. And she says, I'm here to tell you right now that no, it's not all in Zach's head. It ultimately came from the origin of the sins and of their purpose throughout the mythological history. The end monologue explains that they are not humans, they're immoral. The entire film is a metaphor for Dante's Inferno. And these are souls damned to live in a never-ending, never-changing purgatory. An endless loop, if you will. Zach will always die because his sloth will hinder him from telling Andy how he feels, who will never return his love because she is lust. Rowan will always have an affair because her envy requires her to be this picture-perfect woman, in which return will release James' wrath to snap and kill her. And of course, greed is a poor man's gluttony, which unfortunately is why nine times out of ten, Logan's pride will always come running back to Gil, even though it longs for Roger. This story has no happiness, nor virtue, and will never end. Dark. Very dark. Much deeper than what I was thinking. Because when I saw the last scene, I was like, oh, he just imagined all of this or like thought about it all in his head but it didn't actually happen apparently it did and no matter what happens it's always going to end the same it would all yeah which that makes sense i do wonder though if it did actually happen because he shot and killed himself but then at the end he's alive so, so maybe they're all in hell living this purgatory over and, that's and over. over and over again that like they're sense. all it's a never-ending cycle yeah yeah because I feel like, yeah, if you put all the seven deadly sins together, that's not going to be a good outcome. <laughs> yeah, definitely a super interesting ending, for sure. And I like that explanation. It kind of gives a deeper meaning to it all and makes it a little more interesting. So, like I said, Logan was played by Mally. She is the director and writer of the movie. This movie won, uh, like, 40 different films awards in the indie category. And she said she always knew she would play Pride. I think the use of the seven deadly sins, it was very telling to myself as a human, which sins I personally resonated with the most. And what my own personal weaknesses are, my junior year of college, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and I refused to speak of it with anyone besides my immediate family. I was determined to beat it. Without showing any weakness, only bravery, my pride kept me from talking about it with anyone. And then when I had my surgery six months later, I told the world via social media. People were shocked and confused. Looking back on it now, the fact that I had this mindset of being sick equals weakness, that's upsetting. We are all flawed. That's what makes us human. But I was so afraid of the world not seeing me as a strong, unbreakable little firecracker that it was always described as me. I didn't want to let anyone down. I've always struggled with this, and so it just felt right to play Logan. It was honestly an impossible task. Seven actors, two crew members, third being myself, and 11 days in Wolcott, Vermont, filming 118 pages. And that's honestly impressive. Yeah. 
And for the little budget she had, it was a good movie. And yeah. The concept, I do like the concept of it. Yeah. Was there a little bit of, like, serious type right. moments? Like, okay. But overall, like... It when was you a, look at these facts, too, like, it makes it even more, like, impressive. Like, just because they had so few... Three crew members. That's insane. Like, I feel like most movies have, like, a whole like group of people working on it and like the I believe a lot of it was even done on her phone like so that's very impressive if you watch like some of the behind the scenes yeah um she attended Penn State theater performance BA and uh yeah she got the idea one day when she was in college and they had to do kind of like a a biblical thing of the seven deadly sins and she thought how cool would it be if I manifested it into what the seven deadly sins would look like as humans, like if they were people. Yeah. So since she's always loved the seven deadly sins, um, she turned it to a project and, you know, obviously she turned it into this movie and brought it to life. And uh, she just, you know, goes on to say like, doing the play when everybody or the project that they did in college and everybody's like oh I want to be this one and I'm this one and I'm totally this one she's sitting there thinking like very interesting like it's very telling like you want to be pride so bad and you're you think you're the perfect gluttony like so what are you saying about yourself right what do you you see in yourself what are you kind of admitting about yourself without admitting about yourself you know right so and that's just kind of how it turned into the alpines yeah that's definitely a cool uh cool way to get a movie out of it yep and it wasn't you know i'm sure she made more off of what she put into it and if anything you know it's it worked you know yeah definitely that's very impressive of her so good job mally corrigan yes Heads off to you. And if you're listening to this podcast by any choice, by any chance, um, my cousin's been trying to reach out to you, so check your Instagram messages and start writing people back. <laughs> wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> She's got questions and need answers. <laughs> Dedicated. She's putting the work in, lady. <laughs> All right, well... Now that we took you through fantasy land, we're about to get into some true crime. And I just want to say, if you hear weird noises, it's my chair. <laughs> I just don't, guys, don't want you to think like I'm just like busting loose on <laughs> on the thing. Dang, she's gassy. Like, it's a leather. Sure, it's sure, a leather it's chair. chair. My elbows keep like swiping the sides of it. <laughs> I can confirm, guys. It's her chair. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So, this one um, apparently was a popular little story. I never heard of it until I started looking for a story to put after the Alpines. Um, and I came across this. And it's quite interesting. Um, but it gets dark. So, buckle up. Just kind of giving you guys a little bit of a, a warning. 
Um, so this is called The Ketty Murders. Are you familiar with this one? I don't believe so, but maybe if you go through it and it'll sound familiar, but okay. I don't think so. So this goes back in November of 1980. 36-year-old Glenna Sue Sharp decided to move her family, um, which consists of her and her five kids. They decided to move from Connecticut um, to a small town in California by the name of... Ketty? Ketty! <laughs> Glenna Sue Sharp, she was dark-haired, attractive, single mother, five children. Everybody called her Sue, though. In 1979, she left her abusive husband. Her brother, who would help her and her children start a new life in Quincy, California... It's about 150 miles north of Sacramento. Sue packed up her children and moved across the country from North Carolina to the Golden State all the way to California. They lived in a trailer park for a short time, but then Sue decided to move just five miles from Quincy into the mountains to a place known as Keddy Resort. It was once a busy railroad terminal in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Keddy had lost much of its population after a railroad closed down. The town tried to reinvent itself by becoming a recreational camping and hiking resort. However, it kind of failed and Keddy Resort owner Gary Malleth turned it into a series of cabins and let it be a place where he could make it a low income rental housing. Sue's ex-husband was in the military when they divorced, and the Navy gave her $250 a month to start a new life. She also worked a part-time job at the Quincy Elks Lodge, and with the little money she brought in, Sue rented Ketty Cabin number 28 in the fall of 1981. Over the next few months, Sue worked hard to turn their new mountain community into a permanent home for her children. She had a son, which was 15-year-old John, a daughter, 14-year-old Sheila, 12-year-old Tina, 10-year-old Rick, and 5-year-old Greg. Aren't those, like, the 80s, 80s names? I was literally, like, so, like, just true, true American names. <laughs> <laughs> like, doesn't it just remind you, of, like, of your 5th grade class? Well, or, like, Brady Maybe Bunch, not you, like, but, you yeah, know, yeah. my 5th grade class, like... It's, like, all my aunt and uncle names. <laughs> Hmm. I'm gonna sit here and know how to take that. No, not. No, I'm not comparing it to your age. I'm kidding. I kid. I kid. I kid. She's not wrong, though. I mean. Oh my gosh. So, always busy trying to better her situation, Sue took a typing class with financial aid. Uh, neighbors, for the most part, she kept herself, but she was, you know, integrating well. The children were attending school in Quincy, and they were making friends. From the front door, their small wooden cabin opened to the living room. Beyond the living room was a kitchen, two bedrooms. The girls shared one. The younger boys shared the other. The oldest boy, John, got the ground basement all to himself. And from the ground level in the back of the house, a flight of stairs led up to the main living area. So things are going well. Until they didn't. That's how it usually goes. So, months later, 
We're going to fast forward. It's April 11th, 1981. Sue and the kids, they were in and out of cabin 28 throughout the day. A neighborhood boy, Justin Eaton, was going to spend the night with Sue's two youngest sons. And that evening, they, her and the three youngest ones were hanging out. They were in the house in the afternoon. The oldest boy, John, and his buddy, Dana, had spent the day in Quincy. Around 1.30, Sue and her oldest daughter, Sheila, went to pick up John and Dana in Quincy. Then at 3.30, the two teenagers headed out again. They had planned to return home later that night. Sue urged them not to hitchhike, but passerbyers spotted John and Dana on the street corner trying to flag a ride home between 9.30 and 10 that evening. Those darn kids. Right? Sue had spent the later of the afternoon with Sheila and Tina. In the evening, the two girls went to the Seabolt family house, which is right next door in cabin 27, just about 15 feet away. They were visited by their friends. They watched TV. They would spend the night at the Seabolt's house. Tina, on the other hand, decided to go home around 9.30 and planned to sleep in her own bed. The next morning, around 7 a.m. on April 12th, Sheila returned home from her sleepover from next door. When she opened up the front door to the living room, she discovered a massacre. The worst you could imagine. So violent. Blood was everywhere. The living room in complete, complete chaos. Sue, John, and John's friend Dana were all dead on the floor. Electrical cording and medical tape bound their wrists and ankles. Sheila ran to the back to check on her little brothers. She knew that their bedrooms were upstairs and to the back. So time she got there, she realized they were still seemingly sleeping and very unaware of what happened. Jamie ushered them. I'm sorry. So she ran to a neighbor's house afterwards and knocked on number 27, which was the Seabolt's house, and explained, oh my God, you know, hysterics, my family, like everybody, like help. So Jamie ushered them out of the house through the bedroom window to protect them from the horrifying crime scene. Now, Jamie Sieber, I have heard and read different um, some people say it was Siebel Sr., some say it was his son Jr. who went and got the boys. Depending on what page you click on, it's somebody different. So, just want to put in there, I'm not sure if it was the dad or the son. It's been told both ways. So. Conflicting stories. Yes. One of them. Yeah. Went and got the boys and took them out the back window. Now. The fact that they're actually fast asleep still is kind of weird, though. Like, you heard nothing? Yeah. Like, that heavy of a massacre of screaming and murder of three people. Yeah, and you hear not sleep. And they were in deep sleep, I guess. Yeah. So that was just a little weird for me. Mm-hmm. Like, that was my first, like, hmm. Red flag up. Now, Justin lived in cabin number 26. And he lived there with his stepfather, Martin Smart, and Marilyn, his mother, and his brother. After she saw the gruesome scene, Sheila ran 
to the door next door to get help. And while the Seabolts tried to calm this distraught girl down, the teenage son, Jamie Seabolt, and that's where I said it says the son, but it goes back and forth depending on what research you take it on, um, went to cabin 28 to see if they were still alive. The three boys in the house were Rick, Greg, and their friend Justin. They were all safe in the bedroom, and that's, again, where they took them out the bedroom window. He later admitted to having briefly entered the home through the back door to see if anyone else was still alive. So he might have potentially contaminated evidence in the process. Um, but, you know, smarts. Right. He then informed the owners of the Ketty Resort and the cone owner, Jan Albin. She ended up calling the sheriff's department at 805, which... Why would you not call 911? I'm going to just call the owners first. Like, that's weird That's to me. very weird, yeah. But, okay. Yeah. You know, at least somebody called the police. Right. Now, Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive on the scene, and he said this was a scene like he's never seen, like, bloodbath. I mean, that's the best adjective we can kind of give. And he said that he was upset and hated the fact that Sheila had actually seen that. He's like, I don't know how she's going to get past that. I mean, lots of therapy for sure. There was blood on the walls, the ceiling, like from top to bottom. It was so horrific. All the victims had been bound with electrical tape and wire. John and Dana were bound separately, but then they were bound also to each other. John was right in front of the door on his back, so he was the first thing you saw when you walked through the door. His hands were bound with electrical tape, and he was covered in blood from this violent way that his throat had been slit. Next to him was Dana. His face was down, his head was down, and which had been absolutely destroyed by a blunt object that was partially also on a pillow. Although his skull was crushed, he had been manually strangled to death as well. Somebody was angry. Yeah, my goodness. Now, Sue was gagged with a blue bandana, her own underwear, and medical tape had been taped around her head to keep them in her mouth. Wow. It was evident that Sue had put up a fight during the attack, as she had defensive wounds on her arm, now, oddly, John and Dana did not have any defensive wounds or blood under their bindings. Um, therefore, it appears that they had not had a chance to fight back or they chose not to fight back. All of the injuries happened after the killers tied them up. So I'm wondering if maybe since they were bludgeoned in their head, maybe they got just hit in the head and it completely knocked them out. Right. And then... That the, would make sense. Because, I mean, why would you not fight back? Especially if your mom's being attacked. Yeah, they must have just been, like, knocked out. Like. So, which also makes me think that there's more than one person. Because how do you take out two teenage guys and a mom? Because you'd think one would go after them while the person is attacking one of them or something. like. If it was one guy, three of them would be able to take them Yeah, down. I think there's definitely more than one person. So... Findings confirmed that the weapons used in the victim's head were two different hammers, a BB gun, which was in Sue's case, and then a plastic piece that police found in cabin 28 matched up to a Daisy 880 BB gun. 
Additionally, the same gun matched impressions of the butt of the gun that was left on Sue's head. Um, her throat had also been slit and she was found nude from the waist down. Now, her, color, her killer had potentially, I'm sorry, her killer had partially covered her with a yellow blanket. So just her lower half. So they stripped her, but before they left, they covered her with a blanket. It doesn't seem like she was sexually assaulted in any way. So I don't know if they just used the underwear just to have her choke on it. Right, yeah. Or why they went that route. But Maybe to make her feel even more vulnerable or something? Maybe. Because that is a weird thing to do. Yeah. Usually if you're going to do that, you there's usually some sort of raped after assault. or something. Yeah. yeah, but they didn't seem to have any signs of that. Um, it's believed that it was like this. So her knees were up against her chest and almost like a fetal position was how she was bound up. Blood was on the floor. It was on the sofa. It seemed like they said they, the way the blood was, it seemed they had, they moved her and they placed her where they wanted her to be. All of them, actually. So from where they died is not where they were found. So someone's putting a lot of work into this. Yeah. Blood was also found on some bedding in the bedrooms, and that would have been Sheila's bedroom. Sheila also shared it with Tina and her mother. So, again, on the ceiling, the living room, the bottoms of shoes and feet of the soles of the shoes, also of John's and Dana's shoes. So, they were walking around at some point. So, which, to me, that would kind of take away the hitting them unexpected because to me that looks like there's a scuffle then. Yeah, like something was going on. So, yeah, confusing. Um, besides the injuries described on all the victims, um, they had all been violently stabbed repeatedly as well. Investigators also deducted that the head traumas inflected had been from a hammers. Now, given the extent of the brutality of the Keddie Cabin murders, there was plenty of evidence left behind. Investigators discovered two bloody knives, a hammer, the BB gun, weapons included a steak knife, which came from Sue's kitchen, and they also found a bloody fingerprint on a handrail leading down the back door. There was also a bloody knife that was found in a garbage in an alley behind a grocery store just down the street. So with the blood being all over the victims and the floors, um, however, the perpetrators did not leave any of their blood around or blood behind. So if they suffered any injuries during this event, it wasn't serious enough. They didn't leave any DNA except for on one piece of tape. Uh, the knife in the trash can behind the Caddy General Store, I don't think there was any DNA on that as well. But there were no signs of forced entry. 
all the lights were shut off and the phone was placed off the hook and the shades were drawn down. The phone was off the hook. Right. <laughs> Straight 80s. Yup. <laughs> I mean, it's creepy though, like, okay. Yeah. There was one fingerprint that was lifted from the handrail on the back stairs of the cabin, but it was unidentified. Other than that, the killer or killers had to have been wearing gloves. Now that the scene was taken over, they're like, wait a second. Where's Tina? Like, uh, Tina? Oh, yeah, there's a 12-year-old little girl, too. Tina's gone missing. And she was nowhere to be found. Due to the chaos, it took the police a few hours before anyone even realized that Tina was nowhere to be found. There were some bloodstains on her bedding, which suggested that maybe she'd been kidnapped from her bed after the murders. Unfortunately, many hours passed since her disappearance, and the chance of anyone finding her nearby was pretty slim now. Despite the multitude of evidence and the few suspects, no arrests took place. Many people believe that the police were either incompetent or corrupt, and they covered up this crime for some reason. It was true that the investigators failed to log numerous pieces of evidence and overlooked a lot of leads. So it's kind of a shoddy job, but from the get-go. Right. The FBI came right in, and she was supposed to have been playing at Cabin 26, but, well, Cabin 26, she decided to come home to Cabin 28. And so that's when, like, none of the three boys woke up either. Like, so all this is going on. People are coming and going. People are getting murdered. People are... But these boys are just like, nope, I took some NyQuil and we're out. Like, yeah, something's weird there. Makes um, me raise an eyebrow. Some neighbors did say that they heard some muffled screams and groans that woke them up between 1 and 2 a.m. Unfortunately, they couldn't determine where the sounds came from and they just went back to sleep. Like, dude, call it in anyway. Yeah. Um, they thought it was just a television or something, so they just went back to sleep. That is hard, because sometimes, like, if I'm somewhere and I hear, like, a noise, I might be like, someone just scream, or, like, was that, like, an animal, or was that a baby, or, like, no, what's I going on? It. And I then it's it. like, I'm not going to call. I mean, I could, <laughs> but I just never do. So. And it's just repeated, kind right. of like the uh, Lululemon story. Yeah, like, if it was like, oh, <laughs> someone's being straight up attacked hey, right hey, now. Lululemon. Yeah. <laughs> Go back and listen to that one. <laughs> Uh, considering the level of violence that took place, this seems impossible. Also, the murderers must have been aware of the three remaining boys in the cabin. The investigators theorized that someone might have been interrupted in the murders, and therefore maybe the culprits had a chance to kill the younger children in the bedrooms later. But police learned that maybe not all the boys had actually been asleep. Like... So did one hear it, and then just like, oh shit, like, just close your eyes and pretend we didn't hear nothing and go back to sleep. Yeah. Like, um, it's very odd because I feel like if I was laying in bed and I heard people getting murdered, I could see being like frozen and like laying there being so terrified and not knowing what to do. But then later when you're asked about it, being like, I was just so scared and I heard noises. But if you're laying in the same room with Caitlin and one other person, you wouldn't wake up Caitlin and be like... Oh, no, I for sure... Because they're all in the same I'd room. I'd be like, bitch, wake the fuck up. Yeah, the three of them were in one room together. Yeah, no, I would for sure wake... Unless, like, he was just so 
panicked shock. and in shock that he didn't want to move. But I for sure would like, like if you were in the room with me, I would slap you and be like, bitch, do you hear this? I don't know. It's very weird. Yeah, I mean, and I can't imagine watching your mom get murdered. No, you know? not at all. Um, but actually, I take that back because it was Justin that ends up coming forward later and saying, oh, wait, maybe I do remember something. And he was the friend. Okay. Um, so a month after Ketty's murders took place, the neighbor friend, Justin, he was the one of the survivors. He told the therapist that he was having dreams about the murder and in his dreams, he had tried to stop the bleeding in Sue's chest with towels, and he covered her up with a blanket. Was it possible that he either witnessed the murders or woke up at some point during the night but then blocked it out? He was placed under hypnosis in an attempt to recall any details of the night. Justin said he was watching TV in the boys' room before he fell asleep. He began hearing noises out in the living room and claimed to have seen Sue with the two men. One of them was tall with blonde hair and a mustache, while the other was short, dark-haired, and clean-shaven. Justin recalled that both men wore glasses and that the two older boys, John and Dana, came home while Sue was talking to the men, and somehow this erupted into a fit of violence between them, and they all resulted in murder. One of them had a hammer in his hand. He said John and Dana came in, the house and began, you know, arguing with the men. The argument got violent. Tina suddenly came into the room. They said she was holding a blanket and one of the men took it, took her out of the back door before coming back in to kill Sue. Then the other one killed John and Dana. He didn't know where the man put Tina. No one saw him. Like, we saw nothing. We didn't see him. So that's why we're spared. Like, yeah, I guess it's like scary as hell, dude, but like we survived it, you know. Wow, so he said all that under hypno like being Well, he test. went into his therapist and then they put him under hypnosis and this is what I guess he's saying he's Came seen. back, yeah, wow. Um investigators made a composite sketch saying um what he was saying and, you know, describing what he saw. The DNA was collected from the scene in store, but at that point, nobody did anything about it. Um, they just kind of like, oh, took DNA, put it in a bag, set it aside, and nobody even tested it or looked at it. or Crazy. You know. um, Sheriff Douglas Thomas worked a case, and instead of calling homicide, they called organized crime instead. <laughs> and the organized crime unit in Sacramento Department of Justice, it's kind of random. Like, it's weird. Like, why would you call... Organized crime instead of homicide. Clearly, there was some homicide that went on, so that makes no sense. Yeah, and at that point, they're like, um, yeah, that department's known to be, like, corrupt as hell. So, Tina was missing absolutely no sign of her yet at this point. Um, She had believed to have been present at the crime of the scene, uh, but the clues suggested that the perpetrators abducted her because she was kind of a minor, like, yeah, she probably saw something that she shouldn't have seen. Um, and for some unknown reason, they quit investigating where she was. In about a, a month, they gave up. What a quick time to give up. Like, a month. On a 12-year-old little girl. Oh, I know. After her mom was just, and brother That's horrible. was just murdered. How do you just give up? You know, well, we're not finding anything after a month. People investigate things for 
decades. It wasn't until three years later on April 22, 1984, Ronald Padrini reported that he was in the woods 90 miles southwest of Ketty when he stumbled upon something suspicious. When he supposedly collecting cans, um, a human skull popped up and, um, well, next to the skull was a child's blanket, a blue neon jacket, a pair of jeans, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. When they looked further, they found a jawbone and a bunch of bone fragments. They were Tina's remains, but could they tell yet? Not 100%. However, none of the evidence helped the investigators find the killer or determine how she died. That's because you guys are dragging your freaking feet on yeah, it. Yeah, you're not doing such a hot job. So in Buttes County, the department got a random anonymous call, and they said, hey, you know, I have some information. Um... You remember that girl that went missing? I, you know, I think I got an idea of who it might be and this might help you. And um, so they took the information down, but then they did nothing and they didn't even look into it. Uh, the 12-year-old girl, you know, again, was, time she was found, it was too late because now she's just bones. Right. Um, yep. So, yeah, it just... All that information just kind of was in a sealed envelope, but, you know, stupidity leak. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody did anything. This person calls it in, like, yeah, pretty sure that person has something to do with the child, but uh, we're just going to not do anything. Makes, okay. makes sense. <laughs> so there didn't appear to be any motive, apparently, and there was not a lot of evidence to go on, I guess. So, you know, seems to be multiple killers, but based on the weapons involved, after a while, Justin Smart, stepfather Martin Smart, uh, he was even starting to be fingered as a suspect. But why would Martin Smart do it? Well, <laughs> let me tell you why he might do it. So he had been living in their home with an ex-convent named John Bubetti. I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name. So we're going to call him JB. JB. It's going to be a lot easier than me foobarring this name up. <laughs> Both men had ties to organized crime and drug trafficking. Now, why would these guys immediately be thought of as suspects? Well, it's believed that Martin and Sue were having the scandalous Oh, man. So, besides this, it was said that Sue basically was convincing Marilyn to leave Martin. So, like, you know, why don't you just leave your man? He's no good for you. By the way, I'm, uh... This is why we don't... Cut back to a couple weeks ago, our... Ding, 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 our Fatal Attraction episode... If you want to go back and listen, don't get into affairs, people. They just end real freaking messy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Real yep. messy. And that's kind of shady. You're convincing your friend to leave her man that you're boinking. Yeah, that's horrible. You're horrible. So, Marilyn, who is Justin's mother and Martin's wife, she left her husband uh, the day of the murders. Oh, of course. Quinkity-dink? I think not. <laughs> so, why... Would he kill Sue then, right? Because he believes that Sue convinced Marilyn to leave him. And, like, you wanted to be with me, though, right? 
But no, he just wanted to boink you, Sue. He didn't really want to be with you. Like, oh gosh, messy. You messy. got like five kids. He's got three kids. That's just like a lot of kids between y'all. Okay, yeah. like that's just too much. Messiness. But doesn't love win all? Nope. Never. <laughs> so Martin had the affair. Ended up convincing his wife, or now his wife, but ended up being convinced to leave. Right. Right. So when this all happened. He got his conviction, I'm sorry, he got his convict friend, JB, and with their ties to the mob, washed his hands of her. He's done. Now they got to call Saul. But that's a different episode. Um, I think I said that last week, too. Um, all ties together. I think I'm going to find a new joke. I like it. You don't have to. So... That's the theory. At one point, Martin also told investigators that his hammer went missing, which is pretty convenient to explain why his hammer, the murder weapon, is missing. Oh, just another coincidence. (laughs) Um, When they found out that they showed the hammer, well, guess what? It matched the one that was missing. Like, oh, shit. Weird, weird. Uh but he's like, I don't know, someone stole my hammer, and they must have stole it and then killed them with it. Logical. So, and then on top of this, Marilyn gave the Plumas County Sheriff's Department a handwritten letter that he sent to her. This is Marilyn, Justin's mom, Martin's ex-wife, and it was sent to her and signed by Martin. And it read, and I quote, I paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through? What else do you want? And no one did anything with this letter. It's like a confession. That's basically a confession. He said four people's lives. Also, bro, I don't think she wants you back, especially after that. I don't know why you think that doing that would make her be like, oh, my hero. And also, like, Martin, you're a sweet, sick, twisted man, so... yeah. I'd say so. So, is this corruption? I mean, we asked the police, but, like, what's going on? Are they paying them? What's happening? Like, why the shoddy investigation? Why are things not moving forward? Why are we not finding Tina? Like, well, you see, so in 2004, the cabin was finally tore down. Which, what better way to get rid of evidence? Let's just tear the whole building down. Yeah, I guess so. Um, between then and now, or between then and 2004, this case was cold. There's just no information. Meanwhile, in 2008, Marilyn admitted in a documentary about this that she had a 100% thought her husband and his friend JB was responsible. She said, so this lady is being like, yeah, they did it. And Sheriff Doug Thomas has to say, like, overwhelming evidence that Martin did it, right? And they're like, eh, he took a polygraph test. He was fine. He passed. So that's it? That is not accurate. Those are not accurate. I hate that. I hate when people use polygraph or lie detector tests in, like, 
situations like this. Like, I understand, like, maybe they could be beneficial in some aspects, but they're so unreliable and so oh, not Oh, they tell true. you, if you're innocent, don't take one. Yeah. If you're guilty, don't take one. Just don't take you one. You don't have to take one. No. And more times, even if you're innocent, more times out of not, it's going to mark you guilty and come out false more than positive. Because you're just scared shitless when you're taking it, so your heart's all over the place so then it reads as you lying but it's just because you're freaked out about the whole situation i just don't trust they should not be used at all as any type of evidence but in this situation i feel like he probably didn't even take one at all no probably not. and this is just him being like oh no i got you bro yeah i got you yep they exactly. probably just asked him like what's your favorite color what's your favorite dog what's your favorite yeah, things soprano? that have nothing to do with it you know exactly <laughs> um so, according to the report in the Plumas News about the case, he said that Martin were, quote, great pals, and that he had never even allowed, I quote, Marty to come with him. Oh, I even allowed Marty to come with me on patrol a lot. Oh, okay. Oh, my goodness. Right along. Such fun. Yeah. A cop and a mobster. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? He even asked Marty um, for marriage advice. Like, yeah, like, we're, we're that close. We're, we're, we're bestie boos. Men like, talking about their marriage problems, like, they, they're tight. They tight then. His problem is that you're boinking your neighbors. Right. Start with that. Yeah, I don't know that I would go to him for any marital advice. <laughs> so it wasn't until 2013 new investigators took the case and they found the recording of an anonymous tip about Tina. Oh, I'm going to do something about that now. The investigators... We're at Plumas Sheriff Greg Haywood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. In 2016, three years after that, they were put on the case. Gamberg found the hammer and dried up in a dried up pond area. And they believe it's one of the murder weapons. That same year, Gamberg also met with an anonymous counselor at the Reno Veterans. The administration... Um, the counselor had told them that in May of 1981, he had taken on Martin Smart as a patient and that Martin Smart actually confessed that he murdered Sue, the mother of the 12-year-old girl, Tina. And he said, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. Like, don't pin that shit on me. Like, I didn't do it. He's, He's like, like, I just did those other two. I did kill the mother and daughter, but I ain't taking credit for the boys. Like, okay. Like, whatever you say, bro. <laughs> Doesn't make it sound any better. I mean, you still took some lives. So, when the Department of Justice was confronted about this bombshell in 81, they just said, oh, that's just hearsay. So much corruption. I hate that. That boils my blood. So their sounding theory is that Martin Smart killed them with the aid of at least JB, the guy he lived with. And it seems like they did this because of the affair, probably needed to get her out of the situation, which just tell her to pack up and leave. Just like, say this ain't happening anymore, Sue. <laughs> this makes sense for all the evidence already presented as well as the fact that Justin Smart, his son, was unharmed, and the other boys were with him. So, yeah, he's not going to kill his own son. Right. Um, and they're also kind of like, okay, so this probably why he was sketched, 
sketchy on like this is what I've seen this is what very vague on talking about what he witnessed because yeah, this, um, is dad. And this is dad like um yeah so the case again new investigators 2013 they think this is a deep cover-up for the sheriff's department because of like mob shit and where does the mob come into it well because of these two he remembered they had, you know, the whole organized crime thing. As of now, Martin and JB are both dead. and But they were able to get new DNA evidence, and it seems to place other living people there. They haven't announced who they are yet, but this case is still ongoing. And what's crazy is that Gamberg and Haywood were teens during the murders, and they were friends with John and Dana. So, I don't know. I'm weird, just saying so. Weird connection. We're leaving it at so yeah. dot, dot, dot. You're right. <laughs> um, Gamberg said to CBS Sacramento that Dana was at the house that day before the murders. So, slowly already throwing his friend, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, now he's working on the case. One other crazy note linking them to the crime is from a crazy, awesome three-part investigation that took a look into this. And the night of the murders, Martin and JB went to the back door around 10 p.m. They were wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses. They went into a small dive bar. And so when people were interviewed, like, hey, do you happen to see these guys? And they're like, yeah, they were here because these dudes were wearing, like, a three-piece suit and sunglasses, like, at midnight. Like, it was really weird. Yeah. So, I mean... That draws some attention. <laughs> so, we put three-piece suits on and glasses. People are going to be drawn to us. Ha, ha, ha. Here's our alibi. We must have been there when this happened. Yeah. Like, weird. we wanted people to look at us, you it know. Makes sense, Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like um, that night, they were kind of offended and mad because after a couple hours, they left the bar because well, it went from music that was like country, you know, to rock music, and that was just bullshit. We don't rock, man. We just get down with the country. It reminds me when you read me out to Caitlin. Oh my gosh. Don't you hate country music? <laughs> Bish! It wasn't my intention. <sighs> so, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> uh, then later that night, Martin called the bar from his cabin to complain about it some more. Um, then they went to have another drink. It's about 2 a.m. Now, you know, he thinks, you know, okay. I'm going to call and say, like, hey, I'm home. I'm in my cabin. So just very, like, being very loud about their alibi, trying to be like, hey, we're here now. Right. I'm home. It's just time. very obvious about it. Yeah. And also said that Martin indicated that the motive being that Sue was the reason Marilyn wanted to divorce him. He also killed Tina well just because she saw it. And he was like, I couldn't leave her. She saw what happened. It's like Tina watched her mother be murdered then. And then you like took her life too, probably in a very violent way. So that poor child had a very last 24 hours. Yeah. Or however long it took for them to kill her. Right. 
The theory is that the perpetrators were already in the cabin when John and Dana arrived and in front of John's mother, Sue, so she had to kind of watch that happen first. They also said, you know, she had to watch what happened to Tina? Like, hmm, my God, I think she was tortured for a long time. So I don't know if they killed Tina first and then took her out or they made Tina watch as they killed her. So that's kind of a little, like, yeah. I'm not sure what happened there. there. Either way, it's sick that either one of them had to see anything. Or yeah. that any of this even happened, for that matter. Right. They said her death was not quick and that her throat was sliced as well. Mm. They said that they think they were in the cabin for quite a while. Um, so that's pretty horrific. And then in the cold case, for a long time now, it's been reopened. And they're starting to get more and more evidence. Um, it's still an ongoing in investigation. Um, so we'll keep you up on, you know, updates and stuff. Obviously, JB and Martin, well, they're dead, so there's no update on that. Yeah. Um, but because also there was Sheila, that was one of the ones who came home and found it. They said that she's basically like, you know, yeah, Martin and JB. You know, they're just going to let them go, and then they skip town because they can, because they were free to organized go. Organized crime and corruption and all that shit. Um, even though they were told once they were named suspects not to leave town, but okay. Just because you tell them. Right, they're going to do what they want. Yeah, so Sheila was like, the whole thing is a cover-up, and she believes that too. She's like, obviously... Nobody's taking it serious in this town and, like, you know, FML. So, and, uh, yeah, I agree. I feel like there's a lot of corruption, cover-up, and very shady at hiding it, too. Like, they did a terrible job at, you know. Yeah, like, they didn't even try to act like they cared. But at this point, it is unsolved. That is the murder of the Ketty Cabin murders. Um, Sue's Sharp surviving children left California to go live with Aunt. Unfortunately, they later went into foster care as their aunt had already had several children of her own who could not handle anymore. Oh. Sheila has spoken about the horrific incident in several interviews. She mentioned, however, that she doesn't talk to her brothers about it because she wants to protect them. Uh, relatives of the victims and the public anxiously await the day the investigators can bring justice to the killing of Sue, John, Tina, and Dana. Over the years, the Ketty Resort fell into despair, and in 2004, the cabin was demolished, and the entire site has since been abandoned. I got my information from allthatisinteresting.com, wikipedia.com, historicmysteries.com, and morbid podcast. That's so sad. Like I, like I said, it just boils my blood when there's so much shady corruptness going on and people don't fight for victims like it's just so messed up when people like take sides or like they know people so then they get out of things like the fact that these men got away with it and got to live out the rest of their lives for however long that they did it's just messed up oh it is it's terrible and i think at the end of the day obviously sue lost because she died um, was she kind of sluttyish by having an affair? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't sleep with other people's men. Because she, she didn't do that, this wouldn't have happened. But does she deserve death? No. No. Not like, 
okay, Marilyn, kick her ass and move on. Right. Or, you know, now you know how shady your husband is, move on. Okay, you're pissed off. Go to Sue and be like, what the F? You told my wife, F you, we're done. I don't want to see your face. You have 24 hours to get your kids and get out of my town. You know, whatever. But at the end of the day, the only one that paid the penalty and suffered are the children. Yeah. They're the ones didn't that are have living to do with a it. lifelong punishment now. Three of the kids had to grow up without mothers. Mm-hmm. And being tortured. They lost siblings. Years of therapy. They're probably still going through therapy. I'm sure. And then they come across an aunt who doesn't care enough to, you know, help them out. And now they're in foster care. I hope to God that it's a family that showed them love and nurturing. Um, I didn't realize until I did the research that there was an actual documentary on this. I probably will eventually look into it so I can kind of hear the rest of the details behind it. Yeah. Um, and listen to the girls' interviews, but yeah, it's terrible. The only ones that really paid the price at the end between all these grown adults, reindeer games of shitty lives, and the kids are the ones that suffered. I know. It's like every aspect of this story is just unfair. Poor Tina just came home. Yeah, she just was so innocent in the whole thing and she just wanted her own bed for the night. Yeah. Just because she saw what happened, she died. Yeah. Like so unnecessary, so corrupt, so horrible. That's just a really sad story. It is. Yeah, so I like how you know, this I see where you were going with this one because it's like a group of people getting murdered in a cabin, like how it relates to the Alpines and like the seven deadly sins, you know, there was like lust involved and greed and pride, wrath, like all of it ties into what they were going. I guess even in a way, gluttony. Yeah, honestly, they all work in this. Um, so yeah, this definitely pat on the back low. This ties <laughs> in. So I see what you did there because it works together. So while it wasn't titled Seven Deadly Sins Real Life Murder, it kind of was Seven Deadly Sins created murder yeah because they were all in there like really when you think about it all of them check a box in this story full circle yeah definitely so if you haven't seen the alpines go check it out and then you can put the pieces together exactly put them all see how it all relates but crystal's gonna take us down with another story next week and i can't wait to see what she comes up with Yes, guys, you'll have to wait and see, or wait and listen, I should say. (laughs) I do have an idea. I'm going to run it by her, and maybe she'll be on board with it. And if it is, it could be another fun one. Very exciting. I'm just going to say, POV, she's usually on board with things. Watch this time, I'll be like, "Mm, no. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'll probably be like, ooh, yeah. So, but it's a work night for us over here. Um, 
We had our wine tonight. Yes. We got our visits tonight, face to face. I could actually touch her. I know. She just poked me. It was real. <laughs> it wasn't virtual. <laughs> Wait, you're not in my dream, right? Nope. Okay. I'm not one of the people popping up in your face in your dream. My, could, could you imagine if you like hit in my room one night and you did that to me? <laughs> that actually would be pretty funny. Oh my God. Until I go swinging at you. <laughs> I know. And I get knocked out. <laughs> Pat's like, oh, it's just Crystal. Yeah. This is normal. Oh. Well, then shut up, bitch. And let out of sleep. <laughs> so we can't wait to talk to you guys next week and on that note we got to go stay creepy bye, bye. and uh be safe stay out of cabins <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>